The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, correctly handling the word of truth. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we open God's word this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for to study it. We do that through the use of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... That is done privately as a matter of our priesthood. We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The result of confession of sin is the filling of the Holy Spirit who, is the, who indwells us but is the one who helps us to understand His Word and to metabolize it, assimilate it into our thinking so that we can apply it in our lives. Let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to gather together as a body of believers to study your word, to understand all of the phenomenal assets that you have provided for us, and to live this unique spiritual life of this church age. Father, we thank you that you have defeated sin at the cross through the remarkable plan of salvation whereby Jesus Christ paid the penalty for us, and by faith alone in Christ alone we have eternal salvation. But we are also at the moment of salvation set free from the power of the sin nature. And so we must learn the assets you have provided for us that we may, on a day-to-day basis, uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh, the sin nature, and advance spiritually by walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that as we continue our study of this topic, you would help us to uh, see how these things apply to our own lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 5, and we are going to continue our study of what it means to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. By way of introduction, we saw that this is often a phrase that is bandied about in Christian circles, yet it seems that more often than not, people utilize these phrases without giving them a whole lot of thought and just sort of assuming that everybody knows what we're talking about and everybody knows how to do it. And it's amazing how many times you find people asking questions about these things and uh, not getting very good answers. So we have been taking our time with this particular verse to see the background, to understand its dynamics, so that it can be something that is intensely practical for our spiritual life. For as a matter of fact, I think this section of Galatians 5 is one of the most significant passages in all of the New Testament for how we are to live the spiritual life. We saw at the beginning that this is a mandate directed to every believer. It is a present active imperative, which means that this is a general precept or general principle for the spiritual life. Paul says, but I say... Walk by means of the Spirit. Then the result of that is given in the second clause of the sentence, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Last time we saw that that in the Greek uses a double negative. Now in English, if you use a double negative, they cancel out one another and you end up with a positive. But a double negative is bad English, but in the Greek it is 
the way of emphatically stating a point. And there are two different Greek words used for negation, u and may. And when they are put together, you have one of the most emphatic ways of, of, of denial possible, especially when that is used in conjunction with an aorist active subjunctive verb. The subjunctive mood is the mood of potentiality, and by coupling the double negative with the mood of potentiality, what you are saying is that all potentiality is removed. In other words, it is absolutely impossible then to carry out or to fulfill literally. This is the verb teleao, T-E-L-E-I-O-O, and it means to bring to completion or to fulfill. And here we are looking at the sin nature and its dynamics of tempting the uh, mentality of the soul to sin. And it is saying you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Flesh being a figurative way of referring to the sin nature. So we see that there is a contrast in this verse between walking by means of the Spirit and fulfilling the lust pattern, which is the underlying motivation of the sin nature. Because of the strong negation that is in the middle of the verse, we see that it's an either-or scenario. Just as the Scripture talks about walking in light or walking in darkness as a believer, you can still walk in darkness. It's tantamount to walking according to the sin nature. These are mutually exclusive categories. It's not an either-or. It's not a both. I mean, it's not a both-and. It is an either-or. It is one or the other. When we come to look at the character of God, we see that God is absolute righteousness. Because He is absolute righteousness, God cannot have fellowship with any creature that is less than perfection. What the righteousness of God demands, therefore, which is absolute perfection, the justice of God executes. So what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So when you or I commit any sin, whether it may be to us a rather minor sin, like a white lie, uh, we are grumbling or complaining about something we think is justifiable, whatever it might be, when we commit that sin of the tongue, mental attitude sin or overt sin, it is a violation of the perfect righteousness of God, so it is rejected, and fellowship at that point is broken. So we are no longer walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, who is, has as his, one of his primary responsibilities in the spiritual life, the realm of maintaining spiritual fellowship. So when we sin, we are said to grieve the Holy Spirit and to quench the Holy Spirit so that He is no longer the active influence in our lives, but the sin nature becomes the active influence in our lives. So at that point, we decided to stop last time and begin a look at the doctrine of the sin nature. So let's have a little review so that we can get caught up, and then we can go forward. As I know, there were a number of you not here last time, so we'll have a little review and move forward. Terminology was point number one. It's the word sarks. This is the word here translated flesh. Looks like this in the Greek. S-A-R-X. And it refers literally to the flesh. That is the material that covers our bones. But it is used figuratively to refer to the sin nature. In a number of different passages. Romans 7.5, Romans 7.18, and Romans 8.4-8, through 8, just to name a few. There it relates to the fact that, that there is a conflict between the flesh and the sin nature. And the reason it is called the flesh has to do with the fact that the sin nature itself, when, when Adam sinned and acquired a sin nature, his constitution, as we will see, was radically transformed, degenerated is really a better word, was radically transformed so that even in his physical makeup, there was a deterioration so that uh, the sin nature is passed on genetically through the male of the species. 
This is not a materialist, materialism, immaterialism, dualism sort of thing, but the source of the sin nature or its, its base of operations is considered to be our body. So point number one was terminology. Point number two was definition. We reviewed the Westminster Larger Catechism definition, which said that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. We saw that Lewis Berry Chafer modified that and I think improved on it by saying that sin is any want of conformity to the character of God. That's the standard. How do we know if something is a sin? It's not because we have some internal impression that it is a sin, not because we have some, some intuitive insight, but because there is clear, objective teaching in the Word of God about the person of God, His character, and the law of God expressed in the Scriptures that give us that standard. The general term that is used for sin in the uh, Greek New Testament is the word hamartia. Looks like this. This is a rough breathing mark here, so it's transliterated as an H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. And it means to miss the mark. If any of you like archery or shooting, pistol shooting, rifle shooting, when you miss the target, that's the analogy. That's the literal meaning of hamartia. Missing the mark is falling short of God's absolute standard. Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the meaning of hamartia. And it is this Greek word that gives us the English word hamartiology. Amartiology is the technical term for that theological discipline that studies what the Scripture says about the doctrines of sin. So that is what we are doing in brief, is having a little basic introduction to homardiology. We concluded by saying that the definition of sin was any mental, verbal, or overt act which violates the character, standards, and will of God which are revealed in the Word of God. We always add that final phrase, revealed in the Word of God, because that gives us that clear, objective standard for making a decision about what sin is. It's not some subjective impression, but it has a clear standard. It's expressed in the Word of God. So it's any mental, verbal, or overt act which violates the character, standards, and will of God which are revealed in the Word of God. Now, the sin nature is the capacity, the propensity, and the inclination in every human being to make life work independent of God. It is the capacity, the propensity, and the inclination in every human being to make life work independent of God. Dr. Chafer said, sin is the restless unwillingness. I like that. The restless unwillingness on the part of the creature to abide in the sphere and limitation in which the perfect Creator placed him. We have a restless unwillingness to obey God, is what that is saying. It's negative volition. That is our propensity, our inclination. Point number three, we saw that sin originated in the universe as a result of the sin of Lucifer, the highest, most beautiful, most intelligent of all the creatures, when he first sinned. And we saw that in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. When Lucifer fell, he was given a new name or title. Uh, in the Hebrew, it was Shatan. We transliterated Satan. It means accuser. And he accused God. We derive from that term the, the deduction that Satan must have accused, the uh, righteousness and justice of God, saying something along the lines of, how can a righteous and just God send his creatures to a lake of fire? How can a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire? You ought to at least give me the opportunity to see if I can uh, fulfill my desire of acting like God. And so God decided to give him a little opportunity to do so and created the human race. And so the creation of mankind is directly related to this conflict in the angelic realm. That is why sin and all of these things go far beyond simply the material observation but are involved in this greater conflict, this cosmic conflict among the angels. So sin originated first with Lucifer, and then we saw that in analyzing that, we drew some conclusions about sin, and that was point number four. 
that sin is an act of volition against God. Sin is an act of volition against God, and we saw that it produces sins in four categories. There are sins of commission. This is when we uh, perform or engage in any overt mental or verbal, verbal act which violates the character of God. We intentionally or intentionally perform or engage in some overt mental or verbal act which violates the character of God. There are sins of commission, sins of omission. A sin of omission is a failure to attain the highest standards revealed by God. Just a failure to obey God is a sin of omission. Then there are sins of ignorance. We do something and we are not sure that it is a sin. We don't know that it's a sin, but nevertheless, it does violate the character of God, so it is a sin. We want to do it and we do it, so it's a sin. And then there are sins of cognizance where we clearly know that something is a sin and we make a... uh, definite volitional decision to engage in that sin despite the prohibitions in the Word of God. And all sins, sins of omission and commission, sins of ignorance and cognizance, were all paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Point number five, we saw that sin is ultimately an act of independence against God so that all sins are first and foremost against God, no matter who else they might affect. We do not sin against other people. We may do things that hurt other people. There may be consequences of our sin that that hurt other people. But remember, sin, by definition, is a violation of what? Not the character of your wife or your husband or your friends or the law or the government. Sins are a violation of the character of God. So by definition, all sin is is against God. Point number six, we saw that sin originated in the human race with Adam's original sin in the garden, and we surveyed Genesis 1 through 3 and the original test in the garden when God placed Adam and Isha in the garden. She was called Isha in the Hebrew up until after the fall when she had her first child, and then Adam renamed her Kava, which means mother of all living. So Adam and Isha had a test. There's a tree. And the issue in, in, the, um, in the garden is whether or not they will eat. Here's the fruit. And that's the issue. It's positive volition. And they could either be, either be negative to God or positive to God. And if they rejected God's prohibition and ate, then they would die. And it's a very strong statement in the original Hebrew that the instant they ate, they would die spiritually. They would die. And we know that at the instant they ate, they did not die physically. So the only conclusion is that they would die spiritually, which is defined as separation from God. And we saw that when God came to walk in the garden with them, as He did on a daily basis, that instead of coming to Him because there was unimpeded fellowship, they ran and hid because now sin had erected a barrier between man and God. So the first, the first result is the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. Now, spiritual death, as we have seen and studied, is the primary penalty. And by way of shorthand, we just called this P1. Spiritual death is the consequence, the penalty that God has mandated for sin. As a result of that, there are seven or six other categories of, of death mentioned in the Bible. All other categories of death are the result of spiritual death. If it were not for Adam's original sin and spiritual death, we would not have any other category of death. So we have physical death, sexual death, positional death when the believer is identified with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, you are identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, and that is called positional death. Then there is carnal death when you sin and you are out of fellowship. You are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, and you are living on the basis of the sin nature. And then there is operational death when your production, your operational production is nothing more than dead works because it is done from the the area of strength in the sin nature, and it is nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble. So this is called operational death, and that is the, um, the dead works 
of James 2, 14 through 26. And then we have the second death, which is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire for those who have rejected Jesus Christ's payment for their sins on the cross. So all categories of death are the result of sin, but the penalty is spiritual death, which is temporal and eternal separation from God. Now that brings us down to point number seven, which I think is about where we stopped last time. Point number seven, at the instant of Adam's sin, at the instant of Adam's sin, he died spiritually and acquired a sin nature which inhabits the cell structure or DNA code of the human race. And so the sin nature is passed on genetically to every member of the human race through the male of the species. The instant of Adam's sin, he died spiritually. Here was Adam, and he had perfect fellowship with God, who was plus R. But at the instant of Adam's sin, that fellowship was broken, and a barrier, sin barrier, was erected between Adam and God. As a result of that sin, Adam's basic nature... Another word for this we'll see is his constitution was transformed. It was changed. Just as we saw last time when we looked at the curse that God pronounced on both the animal kingdom and nature as well as man for, for, for sin. When we analyzed that, we saw that there were incredible physiological changes which took place. To everybody, the serpent previously went about, we assume, on legs. We're not sure what form of locomotion the serpent, uh, the serpent had prior to the fall, but the curse was that he would go about on his belly. So serpent snakes now go around on their scuts. They no longer have legs. So there was a, a uh, physiological change. We also know that it, it, this physiological change affected the woman so that she was designed to have children prior to the fall, after the fall, there would be pain. Labor pains are the consequence of sin. Uh, as far as the man is concerned, we know that there were changes related to his responsibility. He was to subdue the earth, and yet now the earth is going to be covered with thorns and thistles, and there would be uh, warfare or antagonism or conflict between man and nature, so that the more we struggle to take care of our yards the more the weeds grow. Isn't it amazing in the midst of this drought? It doesn't rain. The grass doesn't grow. It just burns up, but the weeds continue to grow. That is just a visible reminder that we are living in a cursed environment. And no matter what people do, no matter how much people try to make the environment perfect, the environment is under a curse as a result of man's sin. And yet we are given the promise in the New Testament that Jesus Christ controls the environment, Jesus Christ controls all of history, so that even though man may do certain things that have a, a damaging impact on their environment, it will never destroy the environment. We don't have to worry that the ozone layer will disappear or, or anything else because we're promised in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ holds everything together. And man can never do anything to override the providential care of the Lord over all of nature. But nature nevertheless does suffer a curse. And all of this is a result of Adam's original sin. So it has a certain physical consequence. That's what I'm arguing here. It has a physical consequence. And that's why we have phrases like, like the flesh, body of sin. All of these things indicate that there is a physical transformation that took place in man that affected his DNA. When Adam was originally created in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he was created in the image and likeness of God. Yet, after the fall, when Adam and Eve produced children, the Scripture says that those children were in the image of Adam. They were not in the image of God. Why? Because that imago dei, the image of God was radically transformed, constitutionally changed, because of sin. So man is still 
in one sense in the image of God, but that image has been tarnished, it's been changed, it's been affected negatively by sin. So it affects even the DNA so that this sin nature that Adam acquired at the fall is passed on from one generation to another through the male of the species. This is why it was necessary for uh, Jesus Christ, when God became incarnate, when the second person of the Trinity became incarnate, it was necessary for there to be a virgin conception and birth, and a male was not involved so that there would be no transmission of sin, so that Jesus Christ could be born true humanity, perfect humanity, without sin, in the same sinless perfection as Adam was when he was originally created. So Adam's at the instant of Adam's sin, he died spiritually and acquired a sin nature which is passed on genetically to the human race through the male of the species. Point number eight. The result of this is that every person is born physically alive and spiritually dead. It is the sin nature that produces spiritual death. Because of the presence of the sin nature, there is spiritual death or separation from God. Now remember, the reason it is called spiritual death is because man was originally created trichotomous. That means that man had three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The body is the material part of mankind. The soul was the immaterial part that is comprised of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. This is the soul. The human spirit is that immaterial part of man which is intimately linked to the soul. Remember, the spirit doesn't think on its own. It's the mentality of the soul that thinks. It's the, the spirit doesn't make decisions. It is the soul that makes decisions. That's where volition resides. But the human spirit of man is that immaterial part of man which allows the soul to have a relationship with God and to understand the things of God. So when Adam sinned, the human spirit was lost. He became spiritually dead so that man was divorced from an understanding of spiritual reality. That's why it is important for man to be born again because at the instant that you put your faith alone in Jesus Christ, at that instant God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit and instantly and simultaneously imparts that to the believer so that he becomes spiritually alive at that particular point and is then able to grow spiritually and to have a spiritual life and to understand the things of God, especially through the uh, relationship with God, the, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So, with the sin nature, man was... Every person subsequent to Adam is born physically alive and spiritually dead. Now, the technical theological term for this is total depravity. But this is a term that is often misunderstood. By total, it, it does not mean that man is as bad as he can be. It doesn't mean that everybody is wicked to the nth degree. It means that man's soul, man's being... In its entirety, every aspect of man's being is affected by sin. Our mentality, our volition, our emotion, every category of our being has been affected by sin. So what does this mean? It means that we are absolutely helpless to do anything about our fallen status. There is nothing that man can do to gain God's approbation. Man is fallen. Man is lost. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot do any good that gains God's approbation, gains God's approval that somehow makes him pleasing to God. Now, that does not mean that man cannot do relatively good things, for certainly man can. When we look around and we compare ourselves to other people, we can certainly see that, that some people do phenomenal works of good deeds and that is wonderful, and that's nice, and it's very beneficial to other people. 
but it does not gain the approval of God. It does not impress God one little bit because it all flows from a fallen nature. So we are helpless to do anything about our fallen status. It also means that every aspect of our being is corrupted and polluted by sin. And that means that if we look at the at our self-consciousness, it means that our concept of who and what we are as creatures, as human beings, is going to be distorted by sin. It means that in our mentality, in the thinking part of our soul, our, our, even, even the very starting point of our thinking, for example, uh, in the history of thinking, man usually operates on either rationalism, which has as a starting point principles of human reason, and empiricism, which starts from sense data and sense that all truth ultimately comes through the senses. Then there is sort of what I call rationalism gone to seed, which is mysticism, the idea that we just intuitively know the truth. And um, the only other alternative is, is um, revelation, that God directly instructs us and teaches us what we should think and where the starting points are. That doesn't mean that God tells us everything, but he gives us the starting points, and then we work it out from there, on the ba- but always consistent with the revelation of God, so that our mentality is affected, our emotions are affected, so that we are constantly living in emotional reaction and emotional sins. Our volition is, re- is, is affected, and our conscience is affected. The norms and standards that we have in our soul are many times perverted. You go into certain, especially some Stone Age cultures, like the uh, various tribes in different locations. I've heard of various tribes, like in Irian Jaya, where they believe that the highest uh, standard, the greatest thing that you can do is to deceive someone else to the point of taking their life. So there's a complete reversal of values. Right is called wrong, and wrong is called right. So every aspect of our being is corrupted and polluted by sin, and every human being is born obnoxious to God. Now, this just runs counter to the natural inclination of mankind. We want to think that somehow, after a child is born, that he is not really obnoxious to God until he reaches a certain point where maybe he commits certain sins, or he's at a point at the age of God consciousness, or accountability, and it's only at that point that he becomes a sinner. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that at the point of birth, every human being is minus R. We lack the perfect righteousness of God, and therefore, to use that term that John Calvin used, we are obnoxious to God. We violate his absolute perfect standard. Now, God in his justice and fairness realizes that until... Until that baby reaches the age of accountability. What do we mean by an age of accountability? Where that child is old enough to understand that God exists and to understand the gospel and to make responsible decisions in that realm, that until he reaches that age of accountability, that if a child dies before that point, that he will still go to heaven. That's part of God's grace from the cross. Now, when is the age of accountability? We don't know. That differs from individual to individual and differs from culture to culture. If you have a child and you are, and if two Christian parents have a child and that child is exposed to biblical truth in the home and from infancy they are read Bible stories and they go to church from nursery on up, then certainly they're going to reach an age of God consciousness much earlier than some child born in the bush in Africa or in the, in the mountains in Tibet or someplace like that. There they may not reach God consciousness or an age of accountability until what we would call adolescent years or maybe even early adulthood, depending on the situation. Of course, other factors uh, are taken into account, but God who is omniscient, omniscient knows all the issues. But every human being is born obnoxious to God, so when you look at your beautiful little child, just remember that's nothing more than a sin nature wrapped up in the flesh. And since we're studying the doctrine of the flesh, we know exactly what that means. And that is why the Scripture says that foolishness 
is bound up in the heart of a child. And foolishness is the opposite of wisdom in Scripture, and foolishness is everything that is produced by the sin nature in Scripture. So foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but it is what? The rod of correction that drives it out. So that's the job of the parent, is to at times exercise corporal punishment in order to teach and instruct your children so that they do not grow up undisciplined and irresponsible. So it is your job to teach them wisdom, and as as believers, it is your responsibility to bring them up in the nurture and admonition in the Lord, and this is primarily the responsibility of the Father in the home. It is primarily His responsibility, although in our American culture, most uh, American males have abdicated that responsibility because they just think that's beneath them, but then most American males have abdicated spiritual responsibility too, and they're all relative losers in the spiritual life. See, the issue for men and women is each have roles in marriage, and it is the responsibility of the man, you men. It's your responsibility to make sure that your children are taught doctrine in the home. It is not for you to leave that up to Sunday school at church, but it is your job And you ought to be involved from infancy in telling them Bible stories and communicating doctrine. And as you go through life and you see various situations, helping them to see how to look at, evaluate, and respond to various life situations on the basis of what the Scriptures teach. Always reinforcing in them the reality that the final authority in life is always the Scripture. So as you go through life, as they go through school, you should be interacting with what they're taught at school. You should be familiar with what's being communicated in their classrooms so that you can help them to think critically and develop critical thinking skills to counter the human viewpoint and paganism that is so often communicated through various textbooks and various classrooms as well as from their own peers. So that is your responsibility as a father. So every child is born with a sin nature, and part of the parental responsibility is to teach them to control that sin nature. We also learn from this that as unbelievers and as fallen creatures, we are naturally unable to understand spiritual phenomena because we do not possess a human spirit. This is what is taught in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 14, that the natural man, and the word there in the Greek is not natural, that is a terrible translation. The word in the Greek looks like this. It is psuchikos, P-S-U-C-H-I-K-O-S, from the word suke, meaning soul. And the term there is, it is a soulish man, that is, he has a body, a human body and a human soul, but lacks a human spirit. And the text says that the soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because what? Because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, it has, there has to be a human spirit present in order for spiritual phenomena to be understood. Now, what about the gospel? Well, what happens at gospel hearing? Here you have an evangelist whether that's a pastor communicating to a congregation like this, whether it's an evangelist in a crusade, or whether it is just you witnessing to a neighbor or a friend or somebody at the office, this evangelist is communicating the gospel, gospel information to the unbeliever. Now, the unbeliever has no human spirit. So the Holy Spirit then acts as a human spirit in order to make gospel information clearly understood to the unbeliever. Then, after it is understood by the unbeliever, then he has to exercise his volition, either positively toward it, to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior, or negatively to reject it. And remember, the issue at gospel hearing is always faith. It is belief. It is to accept as true the claims of Scripture that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity, that He died on the cross as a substitute for the sins of the world, that He was buried and rose again on the third day. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins is the basis for salvation. 
And the Scripture says that it is by faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it is important for us to get that as clear as possible. Now, the Holy Spirit is the sovereign executive of evangelism. That means that if you mess up, that if you really don't know all the right answers, or if somehow you are learning how to do this and you're a little nervous and you bumble and fumble around, that God the Holy Spirit is going to make it clear to the person you're talking to how to be saved. And I've found this to be true in many different situations, in many different church scenarios where you might have somebody standing up in the pulpit in some religious context and he says all kinds of things. In fact, I went to a church one time and I knew the pastor and I knew his background and I knew he was what's called neo-Orthodox. Neo-Orthodox means that, that you use Orthodox terminology, but you don't mean by it the same thing that it has historically meant. So when you say believe on Jesus as your Savior, by Jesus you're really talking about a good man. By belief you just mean follow his example. And by Savior you mean that you'll have a better life than if you don't. It's purely ethical. And I knew the pastor and that's what he meant. And yet I knew people who came to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because he used the, the, the Scriptures. He used the uh, correct Scriptures and God the Holy Spirit overrode his human viewpoint theology, and people would actually come to be saved. And it happens in all kinds of scenarios. So just because somebody is, um, is ignorant of what they're saying, or if they make mistakes, or if they fumble around in their gospel presentation, just remember it is God, the Holy Spirit, that is ultimately in control of the situation. So we are, as a result of sin, being born sinners, we're unable to understand spiritual phenomena, because we are dichonomous. And then the other thing we learn is that we sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. That's very important. You were born a sinner, and as a result of that, you produce personal sins. You are not a sinner because you have chosen to sin. And the result of this is that every single person is born in the slave market of sin. And the only hope of release from the slave market of sin is for someone to come from outside who pays the purchase price to redeem us, to set us free from bondage to sin, and that is what Jesus Christ did at the cross. He paid the purchase price. He died spiritually as our substitute. He took on Himself the punishment for our sins. Point number nine. Adam became a sinner by sinning. We sin because we are sinners. Adam's sin was unique. He was perfect. He became a sinner by sinning. You were born a sinner, so you sin. Adam's personal sin caused his sin nature, but our sin nature produces personal sins. Adam became a sinner by sinning, but we sin because we are sinners, and Adam's personal sin caused his sin nature our sin nature produces our personal sins. Point number ten, sin changed man constitutionally. This is something to think about. Sin changed the nature of humanity constitutionally. What I mean by that word constitutional is that that word refers to the basic composition or structure of something. Sin is not simply a disease. Simply, it, sin is not mean that you just are lacking perfect righteousness. Sin is much more than that. Sin means that there is a constitutional defect in the basic nature of man. That's somewhat redundant. The constitution or nature of man changed downward. It no longer was, after Adam sinned, he no longer was what he was when he came from the hand of God. His human nature had been degenerated. It had changed downward. The result of that is that all of his descendants are born in his image rather than in the full, perfect image of God. Point number 11. Sin permeates every aspect of our humanity. Sin permeates every aspect of our humanity. Listen to some scriptures. 
Genesis 6-5, just prior to the flood. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart. Incidentally, this is another verse you can use to show that the biblical definition of heart is the mentality of the soul. It's where thinking is the thoughts of his heart, not the feelings of his heart. Job 14.4 Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Job 15.14 What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that the act of conception was a sin, but that the sin nature is transferred through conception. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Ecclesiastes 7.29 Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So, point number 11. The Scriptures clearly testify that man is deeply infected and constitutionally defected by sin. Point number 12, there are various misconceptions about sin. Various misconceptions about sin. First of all, sometimes people define sin as selfishness. While all selfishness is sin, not all sin is selfishness. That's a limiting of the concept. Sin is much more than simply selfishness. Sin is not merely unbelief. While scriptures clearly say that that anything done apart from faith is sin... Not all sin is, sin is not merely unbelief. The same is true, though all unbelief is sin, not all sin is simply unbelief. Third, not all sin is a violation of law. Sometimes sin is defined as a violation of law. It goes beyond simply the violation of law to the violation of the character of God which lies behind all law. So sin is much more than simply either selfishness, unbelief, or the violation of law. It is a violation of the character of God. Point number 13. Our sinfulness has had a tremendous effect upon God. See, too often we want to back up and rationalize and, have, and deceive ourselves into thinking that, that our sin really doesn't affect God. Now, I don't mean it affects God in His person or His character But it has affected God because God, in His mercy and grace and love, has chosen to solve the sin problem. Now, if God could have solved the sin problem in any other way, He would have done so. But God could only solve the sin problem by sending His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to become flesh, to become a man, to become a creature and to go to the cross where He would die spiritually and be separated from man, where He would be, uh, where all the sins of humanity would be poured out on Him, and He who knew no sin would be made sin for us. That is how it affected God. Our sin is not something that we can treat lightly or rationalize. It has had a tremendous impact upon the nature of God so that we cannot rationalize our sin as being of little or no concern to God. Point number 14, all of our sins, past, present, and future, the sins of every human being were paid for in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. Because Jesus Christ paid on the cross for our sins, every sin is poured out on Him. Therefore, because they are paid, sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? The, if, the, if you are not a believer, then you will die in your sin. Sin will not be the issue at the final judgment. The issue will be righteousness or your works. Because sins have already been judged, the issue is going to be your works. And because your works do not add up to perfect righteousness, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Scripture says that he who believes in the Son is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Failure to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ means that you die minus R. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that instant God imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that he has perfect righteousness and when he dies, he has access to heaven because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because of his own works. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now that leads us to point number 15. Point number 15 is that the believer still possesses a sin nature. It is not wiped out by salvation. As a believer, you still have a sin nature, but you are no longer a slave to the sin nature. You now have a sin nature so that you can, and you now have a new nature, which is the human spirit, and you are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Now that is bringing us into a new topic for next time, which I think is a little too much to start into this morning. It's a little hot and everybody's having a hard time concentrating. So we'll go ahead and stop a little early this morning so we can regroup and recover for the second hour. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes and we'll close in prayer. Father, we do thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word. And as we study what Your Word says about our nature and about the sinfulness of man, we are indeed impressed with all that You have done in regards to our salvation. For this cost You your Son. The second person of the Trinity became man. True humanity and went to the cross where He was judicially separated from you for those three hours when all the sins of mankind was poured out upon Him. And that is the basis for our salvation so that it is not based on anything that we have done but it is based totally upon what you have done. Now, Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would know that Your Word is very clear. Your Word says that it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And that faith is in Jesus Christ who died on the cross as our Savior. So all that is necessary in order to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says that is all. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's not based on works. It's not based on moral reformation. It's not based on church attendance, church membership. It's not based on any other human factor. It's based simply on acceptance of Jesus Christ's payment on the cross. Now, Father, we thank You for the things that You have instructed us this morning. Help us to think about them, to assimilate them into our soul that it may be beneficial to us in our spiritual growth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.